Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Not a whole lot going on right now. The Three Imposters is about to continue. We're going to wrap up the uh, the novel of the Dark Seal. And, um, and then uh, move on to the next part of the story next week. I think that's it. Um, I've got a special announcement at the end of the episode. Uh, something that I was something that happened last night that I'm really excited about. So um, we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. But uh, let's just save a bunch of time and get on with the story. The talk went on to the discovery of a Roman villa in the neighborhood, and soon after I left the room and sat down apart to wonder at the drawing together of such strange clues of evidence. As the professor had spoken of the curious word, I had caught the glint of his eye upon me, and though the pronunciation he gave was grotesque in the extreme, I recognized the name of the stone of sixty characters mentioned by Solanus, the black seal shut up in some secret drawer of the study, stamped forever by a vanished race with signs that no man could read, signs that might, for all I knew, be the veils of awful things done long ago and forgotten before the hills were molded into form. When, the next morning, I came down, I found Professor Gregg pacing the terrace in his eternal walk. "'Look at that bridge,' he said when he saw me. "'Observe the quaint and gothic design, the angles between the arches and the silvery grey of the stone in the awe of the morning light.' I confess it seems to me symbolic. It should illustrate a mystical allegory of the passage from one world to another. Professor Gregg, I said quietly, it is time that I knew something of what has happened, and of what is to happen. For the moment he put me off, but I returned again with the same question in the evening, and then Professor Gregg flamed with excitement. Don't you understand yet? he cried. But I've told you a good deal, yes, and shown you a good deal. You have heard pretty nearly all that I have heard, and seen what I have seen, or at least, and his voice chilled as he spoke, enough to make a good deal clear as noonday. The servants told you, I have no doubt, that the wretched boy Craddock had another seizure the night before last. He awoke me with cries in that voice you heard in the garden, and I went to him, and God forbid you should see what I saw that night. But all this is useless. My time here is drawing to a close." I must be back in town in three weeks, as I have a course of lectures to prepare, and need all my books about me. In a very few days it will be all over, and I shall no longer hint, and no longer be liable to ridicule as a madman and a quack. No, I shall speak plainly, and I shall be heard with such emotions as perhaps no other man has ever drawn from the breasts of his fellows. He paused, and seemed to grow radiant with the joy of great and wonderful discovery. "'But all that is for the future, the near future certainly, but still the future,' he went on at length. "'There is something to be done yet. "'You will remember my telling you that my researches were not altogether devoid of peril. "'Yes, there is a certain amount of danger to be faced. "'I do not know how much when I spoke on the subject before, "'and to a certain extent I am still in the dark. "'But it will be a strange adventure, the last of all, the last demonstration in the chain.' "'He was walking up and down the room as he spoke,' and I could hear in his voice the contending tones of exultation and despondence, or perhaps I should say awe, the awe of a man who goes forth on unknown waters, and I thought of his allusion to Columbus on the night he had laid his book before me. The evening was a little chilly, and a fire of logs had been lighted in the study where we were, and the remittent flame and the glow on the walls reminded me of the old days. I was sitting silent in an armchair by the fire, wondering over all I had heard, and still vainly speculating as to the secret springs concealed from me under all the phantasmagoria I had witnessed, when I became suddenly aware of a sensation, 
that change of some sort had been at work in the room, and that there was something unfamiliar in its aspect. For some time I looked about me, trying in vain to localize the alteration that I knew had been made. The table by the window, the chairs, the faded settee were all as I had known them. Suddenly, as a sought-for recollection flashes in the mind, I knew what was amiss. I was facing the professor's desk, which stood on the other side of the fire, and above the desk was a grimy-looking bust of pit that I had never seen there before. And then I remembered the true position of this work of art. In the furthest corner by the door was an old cupboard projecting into the room, and on top of the cupboard, fifteen feet from the floor, the bust had been, and there, no doubt, it had delayed, accumulating dirt since the early years of the century. I was utterly amazed and sat silent still in a confusion of thought. There was, so far as I knew, no such thing as a stepladder in the house, for I had asked for one to make some alterations in the curtains of my room, and a tall man standing on a chair would have found it impossible to take down the bust. It had been placed not on the edge of the cupboard, but far back against the wall, and Professor Gregg was, if anything, under the average height. "'How on earth did you manage to get down, Pitt?' I said at last. The professor looked curiously at me and seemed to hesitate a little. "'They must have found you a stepladder, or perhaps the gardener brought in a short ladder from outside.' "'No, I have had no ladder of any kind. "'Now, Miss Lally,' he went on with an awkward simulation of jest, "'there is a little puzzle for you, a problem in the manner of the inimitable Holmes. "'There are the facts, plain and patent. "'Summon your acuteness to the solution of the puzzle.' "'For heaven's sake,' he cried with a breaking voice, "'say no more about it.' I tell you, I never touched the thing. And he went out of the room with horror manifest on his face, and his hand shook and jarred the door behind him. I looked round the room in vague surprise, not at all realizing what had happened, making vain and idle surmises by way of explanation, and wondering at the stirring of black waters by an idle word and the trivial change of an ornament. This is some petty business, some whim on which I have jawed, I reflected, the professor is perhaps scrupulous and superstitious over trifles, and my question may have outraged unacknowledged fears, as though one killed a spider or spilled the salt before the very eyes of a practical Scotchwoman. I was immersed in these fond suspicions, and began to plume myself a little on my immunity from such empty fears, when the truth fell heavily as lead upon my heart, and I recognized with cold terror that some awful influence had been at work. The bust was simply inaccessible. Without a ladder, no one could have touched it. I went out to the kitchen and spoke as quietly as I could to the housemaid. "'Who moved that bust from the top of the cupboard, Anne?' I said to her. "'Professor Gregg says he has not touched it. Did you find an old stepladder in one of the outhouses?' The girl looked at me blankly. "'I never touched it,' she said. "'I found it where it is now the other morning when I dusted the room. I remember now. It was Wednesday morning.' "'because it was the morning after Craddock was taken bad in the night. "'My room is next to his, you know, miss,' the girl went on piteously, "'and it was awful to hear how he cried and called out names that I couldn't understand. "'It made me feel all afraid. "'And then Master came, and I heard him speak, "'and he took down Craddock to the study and gave him something. "'And you found that bust moved the next morning? "'Yes, miss. There was a queer sort of smell in the study when I come down and opened the windows.' A bad smell it was, and I, I wondered what it could be. Do you know, miss, I went a long time ago to the zoo in London with my cousin Thomas Barker, one afternoon that I had off when I was at Mrs. Prince's in Stanhope Gate, 
and we went into the snake house to see the snakes, and it was just the same sort of a smell. Very sick it made me feel, I remember, and I got Barker to take me out. And it was just the same kind of smell in the study as I was saying, and I was wondering what it could be from, when I see that bust with pit cut in it, standing on the master's desk, and I thought to myself, now who's done that, and how have they done it? And when I come to dust the things, I looked at the bust, and I saw a great mark on where the dust was gone, for I don't think it could have been touched with a duster for years and years, and it wasn't like finger marks, but a large patch-like, broad and spread out. So I passed my hand over it without thinking what I was doing, and where that patch was, it was all sticky and slimy, as if a snail had crawled over it. Very strange, isn't it, miss? And I wonder who could have done it, and how that mess was made. The well-meant gabble of the servant touched me to the quick. I lay down upon my bed and bit my lip that I should not cry out loud in the sharp anguish of my terror and bewilderment. Indeed, I was almost mad with dread. I believe that if it had been daylight, I should have fled hotfoot, forgetting all courage and all the debt of gratitude that was due to Professor Gregg, not caring whether my fate were that I must starve slowly, so long as I might escape from the net of blind and panic fear that every day seemed to draw a little closer round me. If I knew, I thought, if I knew what there were to dread, I could guard against it. But here, in this lonely house, shut in on all sides by the olden woods and the vaulted hills, terror seems to spring inconsequent from every covert, and the flesh is aghast at the half-heard murmurs of horrible things. All in vain I strove to summon skepticism to my aid, and endeavored by cool common sense to buttress my belief in a world of natural order, for the air that blew in at the open window was a mystic breath, and in the darkness I felt the silence go heavy and sorrowful as a mass of requiem, and I conjured images of strange shapes gathering fast amidst the reeds beside the wash of the river. In the morning, from the moment that I set foot in the breakfast room, I felt that the unknown plot was drawing to a crisis. The professor's face was firm and set, and he seemed hardly to hear our voices when we spoke. "'I'm going out for rather a long walk,' he said when the meal was over. "'You mustn't be expecting me now, or thinking anything has happened, if I don't turn up to dinner. I've been getting stupid lately, and I dare say a miniature walking tour will do me good. Perhaps I may even spend the night in some little inn if I find any place that looks clean and comfortable.' I heard this, and knew by my experience of Professor Gregg's manner that it was no ordinary business or pleasure that impelled him. I knew not, nor even remotely guessed where he was bound, nor had I the vaguest notion of his errand, but all the fear of the night before returned, and as he stood, smiling on the terrace, ready to set out, I implored him to stay, and to forget all his dreams of the undiscovered continent. "'No, no, Miss Lally,' he replied, still smiling. "'It's too late now.' Vestigia nulla restorsum, you know, is the device of all true explorers, though I hope it won't be literally true in my case. But, indeed, you are wrong to alarm yourself so. I look upon my little expedition as quite commonplace, no more exciting than a day with the geological hammers. There is a risk, of course, but so there is on the commonest excursion. I can afford to be jaunty. I am doing nothing so hazardous as Airy does a hundred times in the course of every bank holiday." "'Well, then you must look more cheerfully, and so good-bye till tomorrow at latest.' He walked briskly up the road, and I saw him open the gate that marks the entrance of the wood, and then he vanished in the gloom of the trees. All the day passed heavily, with a strange darkness in the air, 
and again I felt as if imprisoned amidst the ancient woods, shut in an olden land of mystery and dread, and as if all was long ago and forgotten by the living outside. I hoped and dreaded, and when the dinner hour came, I waited, expecting to hear the professor's step in the hall and his voice exulting at I knew not what triumph. I composed my face to welcome him gladly, but the night descended dark, and he did not come. In the morning, when the maid knocked at my door, I called out to her and asked if her master had returned, and when she replied that his bedroom stood open and empty, I felt the cold clasp of despair. Still, I fancied he might have discovered genial company and would return for luncheon or perhaps in the afternoon, and I took the children for a walk in the forest and tried my best to play and laugh with them and to shut out the thoughts of mystery and veiled terror. Hour after hour I waited, and my thoughts grew darker. Again the night came and found me watching, and at last, as I was making much ado to finish my dinner, I heard steps outside and the sound of a man's voice. The maid came in and looked oddly at me. "'Please, miss,' she began. "'Mr. Morgan, the gardener, wants to speak to you for a minute, if you didn't mind.' "'Show him in, please,' I answered, and I set my lips tight. The old man came slowly into the room, and the servant shut the door behind him. "'Sit down, Mr. Morgan,' I said. "'What is it that you want to say to me?' "'Well, miss, uh, Mr. Gregg, he gave me something for you yesterday morning, just before he went off.' "'I told me particular not to hand it up before eight o'clock this evening exactly, "'if so be as he wasn't back again home before, "'and if he should come home before, "'all was just to return it to him in his own hands. "'So, you see, as Mr. Gregg isn't here yet, "'I suppose I'd better give you the parcel directly.' "'He pulled out something from his pocket and gave it to me, half rising. "'I took it silently, and seeing that Morgan seemed doubtful "'as to what he was to do next, "'I thanked him and bade him good night, and he went out.' I was left alone in the room with the parcel in my hand, a paper parcel, neatly sealed and directed to me, with the instructions Morgan had quoted all written in the professor's large, loose hand. I broke the seals with a choking at my heart, and found an envelope inside, addressed also, but open, and I took the letter out. "'My dear Miss Lolly,' it began, "'to quote the old logic manual, the case of your reading this note is a case of my having made a blunder of some sort.' and, I am afraid, a blunder that turns these lines into a farewell. It is practically certain that neither you nor anyone else will ever see me again. I have made my will with provision for this eventuality, and I hope you will consent to accept the small remembrance addressed to you, and my sincere thanks for the way in which you joined your fortunes to mine. The fate which has come upon me is desperate and terrible beyond the remotest dreams of man, but this fate you have a right to know, if you please. If you look in the left-hand drawer of my dressing-table, you will find the key of the escritoire, properly labeled. In the well of the escritoire is a large envelope sealed and addressed to your name. I advise you to throw it forthwith into the fire. You will sleep better of nights if you do so, but if you must know the history of what has happened, it is all written down for you to read. The signature was firmly written below, and again I turned the page and read out the words one by one, aghast and white to the lips, my hands cold as ice and sickness choking me. The dead silence of the room and the thought of the dark woods and hills closing me in on every side oppressed me, helpless and without capacity, and not knowing where to turn for counsel. At last I resolved that though knowledge should haunt my whole life and all the days to come, 
I must know the meaning of the strange terrors that had so long tormented me, rising gray, dim, and awful like the shadows in the wood at dusk. I carefully carried out Professor Gregg's directions, and not without reluctance broke the seal of the envelope and spread out his manuscript before me. That manuscript I always carry with me, and I see that I cannot deny your unspoken request to read it. This, then, was what I read that night, sitting at the desk with a shaded lamp beside me. The young lady, who called herself Miss Lolly, then proceeded to recite the statement of William Gregg, F.R.S., etc. It is many years since the first glimmer of the theory, which is now almost, if not quite reduced to fact, dawned first on my mind. A somewhat extensive course of miscellaneous and obsolete reading had done a good deal to prepare the way, and later, when I became somewhat of a specialist and immersed myself in the studies known as ethnological, I was now and then startled by facts that would not square with orthodox scientific opinion, and by discoveries that seemed to hint at something still hidden for all our research. More particularly, I became convinced that much of the folklore of the world is but an exaggerated account of events that really happened, and I was especially drawn to consider the stories of the fairies, the good folk of the Celtic races. Here I thought I could detect the fringe of embroidery and exaggeration, the fantastic guise, the little people dressed in green and gold sporting in the flowers, and I thought I saw a distinct analogy between the name given to this race, supposed to be imaginary, and the description of their appearance and manners. Just as our remote ancestors called the dreaded beings fair and good precisely because they dreaded them, so they addressed them up in charming forms, knowing the truth to be the very reverse. Literature, too, had gone early to work and had lent a powerful hand in the transformation, so that the playful elves of Shakespeare are already far removed from the true original, and the real horror is disguised in a form of prankish mischief. But in the older tales, the stories that used to make men cross themselves as they sat round the burning logs, we tread a different stage. I saw a widely opposed spirit in certain histories of children and of men and women who vanished strangely from the earth. They would be seen by a peasant in the fields walking towards some green and rounded hillock and seen no more on earth. And there are stories of mothers who have left a child quietly sleeping with the cottage door rudely barred with a piece of wood and have returned not to find the plump and rosy little Saxon, but a thin and wizened creature with sallow skin and black piercing eyes, the child of another race. Then again there were myths darker still, the dread of witch and wizard, the lurid evil of the Sabbath, and the hint of demons who mingled with the daughters of men. And just as we have turned the terrible fair folk into a company of benignant if freakish elves, so we have hidden from us the black foulness of the witch and her companions under a popular diablerie of old women in broomsticks and a comic cat with tail on end. So the Greeks called the hideous furies benevolent ladies, and thus the northern nations have followed their example. I pursued my investigations, stealing odd hours from other and more imperative labors, and I asked myself the question. Supposing these traditions to be true— who were the demons who were reported to have attended the Sabbath? I need not say that I laid aside what I may call the supernatural hypothesis of the Middle Ages and came to the conclusion that fairies and devils were of one and the same race and origin. Invention, no doubt, and the Gothic fancy of old days had done much in the way of exaggeration and distortion, yet I firmly believed that beneath all this imagery 
there was a black background of truth. As for some of the alleged wonders, I hesitated. While I should be very loath to receive any one specific instance of modern spiritualism as containing even a grain of the genuine, yet I was not wholly prepared to deny that human flesh may now and then, once perhaps in ten million cases, be the veil of powers which seemed magical to us, powers which, so far from proceeding from the heights and leading men thither, are in reality survivals from the depths of being. The amoeba and the snail have powers which we do not possess, and I thought it possible that the theory of reversion might explain many things which seemed wholly inexplicable. Thus stood my position. I saw good reason to believe that much of the tradition, a vast deal of the earlier and uncorrupted tradition of the so-called fairies, represented solid fact, and I thought that the purely supernatural element in these traditions was to be accounted for on the hypothesis that a race which had fallen out of the grand march of evolution might have retained, as a survival, certain powers which would be to us wholly miraculous. Such was my theory as it stood conceived in my mind, and working with this in view, I seemed to gather confirmation from every side, from the spoils of a tumulus or a barrow, from a local paper reporting an antiquarian meeting in the country, and from general literature of all kinds. Amongst other instances, I remember being struck by the phrase articulate-speaking men in Homer, as if the writer knew or had heard of men whose speech was so rude that it could hardly be termed articulate. And on my hypothesis of a race who had lagged far behind the rest, I could easily conceive that such a folk would speak a jargon but little removed from the inarticulate noises of brute beasts. Thus I stood, satisfied that my conjecture was, at all events, not far removed from fact, when a chance paragraph in a small country print one day arrested my attention. It was a short account of what was, to all appearance, the usual sordid tragedy of the village, a young girl unaccountably missing, an evil rumor blatant and busy with her reputation. Yet I could read between the lines that all this scandal was purely hypothetical, and in all probability invented to account for what was, in any other manner, unaccountable. A flight to London or Liverpool, or an undiscovered body lying with a weight about its neck in the foul depths of a woodland pool, or of, of perhaps, murder. Such were the theories of the wretched girl's neighbors, but as I idly scanned the paragraph, a flash of thought passed through me with the violence of an electric shock. What if the obscure and horrible race of the hills still survived, still remained, haunting wild places and barren hills, and now and then repeating the evil of Gothic legend, unchanged and unchangeable as the Turanian Shelta or the Basques of Spain? I have said that the thought came with violence, and indeed I drew in my breath sharply and clung with both hands to my elbow chair in a strange confusion of horror and elation. It was as if one of my confreres of physical science, roaming in a quiet English wood, had been suddenly stricken aghast by the presence of the slimy and loathsome terror of the Ichthyosaurus, the original of the stories of the awful worms killed by valorous knights, or had seen the sun darkened by the pterodactyl, the dragon of tradition." Yet, as a resolute explorer of knowledge, the thought of such a discovery threw me into a passion of joy, and I cut out the slip from the paper and put it in a drawer in my old bureau, resolved that it should be but the first piece in a collection of the strangest significance. I sat long that evening dreaming of the conclusions I should establish, nor did cooler reflection at first dash my confidence. 
Yet, as I began to put the case fairly, I saw that I might be building on an unstable foundation. The facts might possibly be in accordance with local opinion, and I regarded the affair with a mood of some reserve. Yet I resolved to remain perched on the lookout, and I hugged to myself the thought that I alone was watching and wakeful, while the great crowd of thinkers and searchers stood heedless and indifferent, perhaps letting the most prerogative facts pass by unnoticed. Several years elapsed before I was enabled to add to the contents of the drawer, and the second find was in reality not a valuable one, for it was a mere repetition of the first, with only the variation of another and distant locality. Yet I gained something, for in the second case, as in the first, the tragedy took place in a desolate and lonely country, and so far my theory seemed justified. But the third piece was, to me, far more decisive. Again, amongst outland hills, far even from a main road of traffic, an old man was found done to death, and the instrument of execution was left beside him. Here, indeed, there was rumor and conjecture, for the deadly tool was a primitive stone axe, bound by gut to the wooden handle, and surmises the most extravagant and improbable were indulged in. Yet, as I thought with a kind of glee, the wildest conjectures went far astray, and I took the pains to enter into correspondence with the local doctor who was called at the inquest. He, a man of some acuteness, was dumbfounded. "'It will not do to speak of these things in country places,' he wrote to me, "'but frankly, Professor Gregg, there is some hideous mystery here. I have obtained possession of the stone axe and have been so curious as to test its powers. I took it into the back garden of my house one Sunday afternoon when my family and the servants were all out, and there, sheltered by the poplar hedges, I made my experiments. I found the thing utterly unmanageable. Whether there was some peculiar balance, some nice adjustment of weights which require incessant practice, or whether an effectual blow can be struck only by a certain trick of the muscles, I do not know. But I assure you that I went into the house with but a sorry opinion of my athletic capacities. It was like an inexperienced man trying putting the hammer. The force exerted seemed to return on oneself, and I found myself hurled backwards with violence while the axe fell harmless to the ground. On another occasion, I tried the experiment with a clever woodman of the place, but this man, who had handled his axe for forty years, could do nothing with the stone implement, and missed every stroke most ludicrously. In short, if it were not so supremely absurd, I should say that for four thousand years no one on earth could have struck an effective blow with the tool that undoubtedly was used to murder the old man. This, as may be imagined, was to me rare news, and afterwards, when I heard the whole story, and learned that the unfortunate old man had babbled tales of what might be seen at night on a certain wild hillside, hinting at unheard-of wonders, and that he had been found cold one morning on the very hill in question, my exultation was extreme, for I felt I was leaving conjecture far behind me. But the next step was of still greater importance. I had possessed for many years an extraordinary stone seal, a piece of dull black stone two inches long from the handle to the stamp, and the stamping end a rough hexagon an inch and a quarter in diameter. Altogether it presented the appearance of an enlarged tobacco stopper of an old-fashioned make. It had been sent to me by an agent in the east who informed me that it had been found near the site of the ancient Babylon, but the characters engraved on the seal were to me an intolerable puzzle. Somewhat of the cuneiform pattern, there were yet striking differences, which I detected at the first glance, and all efforts to read the inscription on the hypothesis that the rules for deciphering the arrow-headed writing would apply proved futile. A riddle such as this stung my pride, and at odd moments I would take the black seal out of the cabinet 
and scrutinize it with so much idle perseverance that every letter was familiar to my mind, and I could have drawn the inscription from memory without the slightest error. Judge, then, of my surprise when I one day received from a correspondent in the west of England a letter and an enclosure that positively left me thunderstruck. I saw, carefully traced on a large piece of paper, the very characters of the black seal, without alteration of any kind, and above the inscription my friend had written, Inscription found on a limestone rock on the Grey Hills, Monmouthshire, done in some red earth and quite recent. I turned to the letter. My friend wrote, I send you the enclosed inscription with all due reserve. A shepherd who passed by the stone a week ago swears that there was then no mark of any kind. The characters, as I have noted, are formed by drawing some red earth over the stone and are of an average height of one inch. They look to me like a kind of cuneiform character, a good deal altered, but this, of course, is impossible. It may be either a hoax or, more probably, some scribble of the gypsies, who are plentiful enough in this wild country. They have, as you are aware, many hieroglyphics which they use in communicating with one another. I happened to visit the stone in question two days ago in connection with a rather painful incident which has occurred here. As may be supposed, I wrote immediately to my friend thanking him for the copy of the inscription and asking him in a casual manner the history of the incident he mentioned. To be brief, I heard that a woman named Craddock, who had lost her husband a day before, had set out to communicate the sad news to a cousin who lives some five miles away. She took a shortcut which led by the Grey Hills. Mrs. Craddock, who was then quite a young woman, never arrived at her relative's house. Later that night, a farmer who had lost a couple of sheep, supposed to have wandered from the flock, was walking over the Grey Hills with a lantern and his dog. His attention was attracted by a noise which he described as a kind of wailing, mournful and pitiable to hear, and guided by the sound, he found the unfortunate Mrs. Craddock crouched on the ground by the limestone rock, swaying her body to and fro, and lamenting and crying in so heart-rending a manner that the farmer was, as he says, at first obliged to stop his ears, or he would have run away. The woman allowed herself to be taken home, and a neighbor came to see to her necessities. All the night she never ceased her crying, mixing her lament with words of some unintelligible jargon, and when the doctor arrived he pronounced her insane. She lay on her bed for a week, now wailing, as people said, like one lost and damned for eternity, and now sunk in a heavy coma. It was thought that grief at the loss of her husband had unsettled her mind, and the medical man did not at one time expect her to live. I need not say that I was deeply interested in this story, and I made my friend write to me at intervals with all the particulars of the case. I heard then that in the course of six weeks the woman gradually recovered the use of her faculties, and some months later she gave birth to a son, christened Gervais, who unhappily proved to be of weak intellect. Such were the facts known to the village, but to me, while I whitened at the suggested thought of the hideous enormities that had doubtless been committed, all this was nothing short of conviction, and I incautiously hazarded a hint of something like the truth to some scientific friends. The moment the words had left my lips, I bitterly regretted having spoken, and thus given away the great secret of my life, but with a good deal of relief mixed with indignation. I found my fears altogether misplaced, for my friends ridiculed me to my face, and I was regarded as a madman. And beneath the natural anger, I chuckled to myself, feeling as secure amidst these blockheads as if I had confided what I knew to the desert sands. But now, knowing so much, I resolved I would know all, 
and I concentrated my efforts on the task of deciphering the inscription on the black seal. For many years I made this puzzle the sole object of my leisure moments, for the greater portion of my time was, of course, devoted to other duties, and it was only now and then that I could snatch a week of clear research. If I were to tell the full history of this curious investigation, this statement would be wearisome in the extreme, for it would contain simply the account of long and tedious failure. By what I knew already of ancient scripts, I was well equipped for the chase, as I always termed it to myself. I had correspondence amongst all the scientific men in Europe, and indeed in the world, and I could not believe that in these days any character, however ancient and however perplexed, could long resist the searchlight I should bring to bear upon it. Yet, in point of fact, it was fully fourteen years before I succeeded. With every year my professional duties increased, and my leisure became smaller. This no doubt retarded me a good deal, and yet, when I look back on those years, I am astonished at the vast scope of my investigation of the Black Seal. I made my bureau a center, and from all the world and from all the ages I gathered transcripts of ancient writing. Nothing, I resolved, should pass me unawares, and the faintest hint should be welcomed and followed up. But as one covert after another was tried and proved empty of result, I began in the course of years to despair, and to wonder whether the Black Seal were the sole relic of some race that had vanished from the world and left no other trace of its existence had perished, in fine, as Atlantis is said to have done, in some great cataclysm, its secrets perhaps drowned beneath the ocean or molded into the hearts of the hills. The thought chilled my warmth a little, and though I still persevered, it was no longer with the same certainty of faith. A chance came to the rescue. I was staying in a considerable town in the north of England, and took the opportunity of going over the very creditable museum that had for some time been established in the place— the curator was one of my correspondents, and as we were looking through one of the mineral cases, my attention was struck by a specimen, a piece of black stone some four inches square, the appearance of which reminded me in a measure of the black seal. I took it up carelessly and was turning it over in my hand when I saw, to my astonishment, that the underside was inscribed. I said, quietly enough, to my friend the curator that the specimen interested me, and that I should be much obliged if he would allow me to take it with me to my hotel for a couple of days. He, of course, made no objection, and I hurried to my rooms and found that my first glance had not deceived me. There were two inscriptions, one in the regular cuneiform character, another in the character of the black seal, and I realized that my task was accomplished. I made an exact copy of the two inscriptions, and when I got to my London study and had the seal before me, I was able seriously to grapple with the great problem. The interpreting inscription on the museum specimen, though in itself curious enough, did not bear on my quest, but the transliteration made me master of the secret of the black seal. Conjecture, of course, had to enter into my calculations. There was, here and there, uncertainty about a particular ideograph, and one sign recurring again and again on the seal baffled me for many successive nights. But at last the secret stood open before me in plain English, and I read the key of the awful transmutation of the hills. The last word was hardly written when, with fingers all trembling and unsteady, I tore the scrap of paper into the minutest fragments and saw them flame and blacken in the red hollow of the fire, and then I crushed the gray films that remained into finest powder. Never since then have I written those words. Never will I write the phrases which tell me how man can be reduced to the slime from which he came, and be forced to put on the flesh of the reptile and the snake. 
There was now but one thing remaining, I knew. But I desired to see, and I was after some time able to take a house in the neighborhood of the Grey Hills, and not far from the cottage where Mrs. Craddock and her son Jervis resided. I need not go into a full and detailed account of the apparently inexplicable events which have occurred here where I am writing this. I knew that I should find in Jervis Craddock something of the blood of the little people, and I found later that he had more than once encountered his kinsmen in lonely places in that lonely land. When I was summoned one day to the garden and found him in a seizure, speaking or hissing the ghastly jargon of the black seal, I am afraid that exultation prevailed over pity. I heard, bursting from his lips, the secrets of the underworld and the word of dread, Ishikshar, the signification of which I must be excused from giving. But there is one incident I cannot pass over unnoticed. In the waste hollow of the night, I awoke at the sound of those hissing syllables I knew so well, and on going to the wretched boy's room, I found him convulsed and foaming at the mouth, struggling on the bed as if he strove to escape the grasp of writhing demons. I took him down to my room and lit the lamp, while he lay twisting on the floor, calling on the power within his flesh to leave him. I saw his body swell and become distended as a bladder, while the face blackened before my eyes. And then, at the crisis, I did what was necessary according to the directions on the seal, and putting all scruple on one side, I became a man of science, observant of what was passing. Yet the sight I had to witness was horrible, almost beyond the power of human conception and the most fearful fantasy. Something pushed out from the body there on the floor and stretched forth a slimy, wavering tentacle across the room and grasped the bust upon the cupboard and laid it down on my desk. When it was over and I was left to walk up and down all the rest of the night, white and shuddering with sweat pouring from my flesh, I vainly tried to reason with myself. I said truly enough that I had seen nothing really supernatural, that a snail pushing out his horns and drawing them in was but an instance on a smaller scale of what I had witnessed, and yet horror broke through all such reasonings and left me shattered and loathing myself for the share I had taken in the night's work. There is little more to be said. I am going now to the final trial and encounter, for I have determined that there shall be nothing wanting and I shall meet the little people face to face. I shall have the black seal and the knowledge of its secrets to help me, and if I unhappily do not return from my journey, there is no need to conjure up here a picture of the awfulness of my fate. Pausing a little at the end of Professor Gregg's statement, Miss Lolly continued her tale in the following words. Such was the almost incredible story that the professor had left behind him, when I had finished reading it, it was late at night, but the next morning I took Morgan with me, and we proceeded to search the Grey Hills for some trace of the lost professor. I will not weary you with a description of the savage desolation of that tract of country, a tract of utterest loneliness, of bare green hills dotted over with grey limestone boulders, worn by the ravage of time into fantastic semblances of men and beasts. Finally, after many hours of weary searching, we found what I told you, the watch and chain, the purse and the ring, wrapped in a piece of coarse parchment. When Morgan cut the gut that bound the parcel together, and I saw the professor's property, I burst into tears. But the sight of the dreaded characters of the black seal repeated on the parchment froze me to silent horror. 
and I think I understood for the first time the awful fate that had come upon my late employer. I have only to add that Professor Gregg's lawyer treated my account of what had happened as a fairy tale, and refused even to glance at the documents I laid before him. It was he who was responsible for the statement that appeared in the public press, to the effect that Professor Gregg had been drowned, and that his body must have been swept into the open sea. Miss Lally stopped speaking and looked at Mr. Phillips with a glance of some enquiry. He, for his part, was sunken in a deep reverie of thought, and when he looked up and saw the bustle of the evening gathering in the square, men and women hurrying to partake of dinner, and crowds already besetting the music halls, all the hum and press of actual life seemed unreal and visionary, a dream in the morning after an awakening. "'I thank you,' he said at last, "'for your most interesting story. "'Interesting to me because I feel fully convinced of its exact truth.' "'Sir,' said the lady with some energy of indignation, "'you grieve and offend me. "'Do you think I should waste my time and yours "'by concocting fictions on a bench in Leicester Square? "'Pardon me, Miss Lally, you have a little misunderstood me. "'Before you began, I knew that whatever you told "'would be told in good faith.' but your experiences have a far higher value than that of bona fides. The most extraordinary circumstances in your account are in perfect harmony with the very latest scientific theories. Professor Lodge would, I am sure, value a communication from you extremely. I was charmed from the first by his daring hypothesis and explanation of the wonders of spiritualism, so-called, but your narrative puts the whole matter out of the range of mere hypothesis. Alas, sir, all this will not help me. You forgot— I have lost my brother under the most startling and dreadful circumstances. Again, I ask you, did you not see him as you came here? His black whiskers, his spectacles, his timid glance to right and left. Think, do not these particulars recall his face to your memory? I am sorry to say I have never seen any one of the kind, said Phillips, who had forgotten all about the missing brother. But let me ask you a few questions. Did you notice whether Professor Gregg— Pardon me, sir, I have stayed too long— "'My employers will be expecting me. "'I thank you for your sympathy. "'Good-bye.' "'Before Mr. Phillips had recovered from his amazement at this abrupt departure, "'Miss Lolly had disappeared from his gaze, "'passing into the crowd that now thronged the approaches to the Empire. "'He walked home in a pensive frame of mind and drank too much tea. "'At ten o'clock he had made his third brew "'and had sketched the outlines of a little work to be called Protoplasmic Reversion.' And that is the end of the novel of the Black Seal. I realized that I have been calling it the novel of the Dark Seal, and I thought that was wrong because the first one was the novel of the Dark Valley, but I kept going with it because I didn't look it up and make sure. So my apologies for that. That is completely my fault. Not yours, because you're not the one reading. Um, this has been a fun and exciting week for me. I have actually been... Uh, holding a casting call of sorts for uh, um, the upcoming Pride Month project. Um, it's uh, uh, I, I don't want to go too much into it because I don't want to spoil it, but uh, I, I put out a casting call on Twitter and uh, got a bunch of responses, went through all of them, picked my three favorites, and they're gonna and uh, th and those three together with two others that I already had locked in uh, are going to be reading uh, a whole novel during Pride Month. So. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Um, thank you all so much for your support. Um, thank you, uh, Andrew Buchanan. Thank you so much for your support. Damon Bowles, 
Bowels, that's not right. Bowls. Damon Bowles, thank you. Uh, Pontus Fredrickson, thank you so much. So, so much for your uh, for your uh, generous um, patronage. Uh, John A. Meadows and Marco Van Putin and Ryan Patrick, thank you all so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Um, there's that phrase that I was trying not to use, but I used it anyway. Uh, I got the other night, somebody subscribed into Patreon with a $50 a month thing. And it completely broke my brain and blew my mind. And, um, is it, it just, it, it's incredible. It's just incredible that the my silly little show with its subpar readings of extremely niche fiction, like the three imposters is the most niche of fiction, um, is like, it gets that kind of support. And I don't know, it's just crazy. And all of the money goes right back into the show. None of it goes into my pocket. And, you know, it's all being used to pay the readers for pride month and to support the hosting fees. So, uh, if you feel you want to kick into my Patreon, we have a $1, a $3 and a $10, or if you want to pay more, you can, um, level, uh, whatever you feel you can, you can give is greatly appreciated. Um, and thank you. Thank you so much. Um, as the, uh, COVID vaccines are kicking into high gear, um, I very strongly advise you to go and, and get vaccinated as soon as possible. Um, the faster, uh, we can get, you know, up to, up to that 80% vaccination mark, the sooner all of this is going to be over and we can return to some level of normality. But please remember that even if you are vaccinated or if you're going to be vaccinated, or if you are, whenever you get vaccinated, you are still capable of passing it on to others. So stay indoors as much as possible, even if you're vaccinated. If you go out, wear a mask as much as possible, even two masks. Like when I'm at work, I have to wear two masks because it's just that's just the precaution that we take. Um, and, you know, two masks, double the protection. So if you go out, wear a mask, uh, go out as little as possible, though. Stay home as much as you can. Um because it's the only way we're going to get past this. So, uh, all right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week and we will be back next week with the next part, the incident of the private bar. Uh, and, uh, uh, I hope you are enjoying it and I will see you next week. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. Boy, now I'm curious if you can hear my cat crunching his cat food over there. Hey, everybody. Welcome to an extra hot volumed episode. If you look in the left-hand drawer of my dressing table, you will find the key of the escritoire. I actually got that pronunciation right. Yay me. <clears throat> in a strange confusion of horror and elation. That word is elation, not elation. That's not a real word. 